Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. I read this story about two people. It happened some time ago. Anyways, the guy in the story was just an awful person. A tax collector, sinner, not the type of person you'd want over for supper. The other person, well, she was no better. She was caught in the act of adultery. Imagine these two, slaves to sin, quite hopeless. Except they weren't. You see, they met this guy. Well, more than a guy, actually. He said, I don't condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Imagine hearing that. An offer to be set free. Mercy when you deserve none. Being freed of your past hurts, pains, regrets. Free to heal, to be made whole again. And the thing is, this guy they met, he didn't just offer freedom to these people. The offer is for every one of us. All we have to do is choose freedom. My name is Ken, and I will be indirectly answering three questions this morning. First question will be, what is freedom? Second question will be, how do I get it? And third, one that I just kind of added to my questions this morning, is um, on a scale of 1 to 10, how free am I? Before we get into that, I've got another question for you, maybe the most important question of the morning. If God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, who breathed the breath of life into you at conception, if God Almighty were to speak to you this morning, what would be your response? It's actually a really important question because most Christians have about three years more information than their obedience can handle. And a lot of times, we, we want to know God's will. We want God to speak to us. We want to know what he wants from us so that we can decide whether or not we do it. But I've found that God won't be mocked. And I have also found that when I really want to hear from God, if I let him know in advance, Lord, if you speak to me today, if you ask me to do something or whatever it is, if you speak to me today in advance, before I know what it is, I give you my allegiance and I promise to do something about it. When we do that, in fact, that's a good question you should ask yourself every time you come to church or open God's word. When we do that, you will likely hear God's voice a lot clearer for two reasons. One is you'll be listening for it, and there will be somewhere in this message, there will be a 90-second portion that it's going to be like God speaking right into your heart. It's called the Rima Word of God. So we'll be listening for it, but also I find that God loves to speak to us when we have an open heart. So that would be my desire for you this morning. John chapter 7 verse 53 uh, and 8 verse 1, they're kind of together. It starts off, they each went to their own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now a few hours prior to this 
what had happened was the Pharisees, which were the religious leaders of the day, the people that kind of had the power in the church, they actually sent the temple guard to arrest Jesus because Jesus was teaching with an air of authority. And what was happening is people were leaving religion and beginning to listen to Jesus. And the religious people didn't like that because it threatened their way of life. It threatened their traditions. It threatened their beliefs. And so they sent the temple guard to arrest Jesus. The problem is when the temple guard went to arrest Jesus, they began to listen to him and they were mesmerized by his teaching because he taught with an authority and a love that they weren't familiar with. And so the, uh, sorry, the, the temple guard, they go back to the Pharisees and the Pharisees, where's Jesus? And they said, well, we've never heard someone teach like him. And so what the Pharisees, the religious people did then is they resorted to intimidation. They says, what? You don't believe this garbage too, do you? Have any of us, the religious, the wealthy, the knowing, have any of us who know God's word, have any of us who've grown up in the synagogue, have any of us believed this teaching? The crowds are ignorant. That's why they're listening. Don't listen to them. Listen to us. And then what happened was Nicodemus spoke up. See, Nicodemus was part of the religious group. He was the one in John chapter 3 that went to Jesus at night to talk about the spiritual kingdom because Nicodemus intuitively knew that the religion that he had grown up with was not the abundant life, and he intuitively knew that this Jesus, this, Messiah, this one that claimed to be the Messiah, seemed to have an essence, a power, and a spiritual attraction to him that the religion was supposed to bring but didn't. So he comes to Jesus at night and they begin to talk about spiritual things. That's when Jesus uttered those famous words, um, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that whoever, um, God, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only forgotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Talked about being born again. So, so Nicodemus was what you would call a secret believer. But he grew up in the church or the synagogue. And sometimes when you grow up in the church and you're surrounded by church people, when you really want to follow Jesus, there actually can be persecution actually from your own friends. Well, let's not get radical about this. Try to tell that to Jesus. But anyway, so Nicodemus stood up. And I, and I hope for, for some of you who are maybe secret believers who are actually living your life with what you called friendship evangelism back in the day, which was kind of living our life hoping that people will just notice that I'm a Christian and figure out how to pray the sinner's prayer or whatever it is and get to heaven. That actually doesn't work. I'm not saying you shouldn't live your life that way, but at some point in your life, in fact, do the, if, if you want to, to share your faith with unsaved people, here's the easiest way to do it. Get to know one. And then invite them into your home just for lunch, just for dinner, for a barbecue. Don't even share the gospel. And you'll begin to love unsaved people. If you don't know any of them, you never get connected. And I, you might know them at work, but just take the next step. Just invite them for a barbecue once. That'll blow them away. And then just get to know them. And you'll probably start praying for them. You'll probably start loving them. And there's a good chance they'll come to Christ if you're living that friendship, that lifestyle. Anyway. I hope for some of you who are the secret Christian, one day your day will come where God gives you an opportunity to stand up for him. That's what Nicodemus did. So he stands up in front of his friends and he says, doesn't our law say that we should first hear a man out before we condemn him? And then the religious people resorted to bullying. You're not one too, are you? 
Read for yourself, has any prophet ever come up from Galilee? And they bullied him. And then we come to 7 verse 53, what I read. They each went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Apparently not all of the Pharisees went to each to their own house. Because uh, the next passage of Scripture shows us that they actually found a man who was willing to commit adultery. During the night, uh, okay, early in the morning, the next morning, Jesus came again to the, tape, the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and uh, I know the children in the service, so let me give you a definition of adultery, because it's a big adult word, right? Adultery is taking something special that belongs to another person. That's what adultery is. Taking something special that belongs to another person. That's actually a good definition for some adults to remember too. That is something special that doesn't belong to you. Hands off. Okay? So they found a woman who'd been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst. They bring her out front and they say to Jesus, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law... Circle law, if you like to circle on your Bible or on your iPhone, doesn't work so well. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women, so what do you say? So apparently, some of the Pharisees stayed up all night, and they found a man who would be willing to be caught and actually filmed in the act of adultery. They likely paid him off, and then they also found a vulnerable woman. She was not a volunteer. She was someone that was vulnerable, likely a widow or maybe a single mom or a divorcee, or maybe she was just lonely, but she didn't sign up for this. And they found the man and the woman caught in adultery, and then they bring him to Jesus. They bring her, sorry, to Jesus the next day. Both the man and the woman were pawns in a greater scheme. They would be sacrificed to serve a greater good. Verse, verse 6 says, they said this, they bring the women, the woman in front of Jesus and said, the law says that we should stone her. What do you say? They only said that to test Jesus. They were trying to find something in the law to accuse Jesus of. Does anyone see anything strange in this story? Just think about this whole story for a minute. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, the ones that all the other people were supposed to look up to, they were supposed to be models, they were the ones entrusted with the very holy words of God, the very law of God, just planned a murder to catch Jesus in a technicality of the law. Because this woman would be stoned. She would be executed by stoning. They just planned a murder to catch Jesus in a technicality of the law. I don't know if you've ever studied execution by stoning, but it's not quite what you think. Most people who are executed by stoning are not killed by the rocks to the head. In fact, the community comes out and they take small rocks. Intentionally, they take small rocks and they aim them at the body, the torso, to inflict internal bleeding. And then at the end, they go for the head. And it's a suffering of two to three minutes where the lungs fill up with blood and they basically, most executions by stoning, you actually drown in your own blood. Plus, there was the humiliation of it. The whole community showed up to stone you. Now just picture that for a minute. That would be like the membership of Center Street Church all come together to kill you. That's what this woman was about to face. 
And the community actually feels justified in doing this. They're purging evil from the midst. We don't want our kids to hear about people like this, so let's get rid of them. They actually felt justified. The religious people sometimes actually feel justified in condemning the person that's living in sin. And here's a prophetic warning for those of us who lead. I don't think that any of those Pharisees, when they entered the ministry, ever pictured themselves capable of planning a murder to catch someone in the technicality of the law. I think they probably entered ministry with good motives. But some of us who have been Christians for years and maybe even led, I think we can understand how it is that you start out wanting to serve the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart, soul, and mind, and it becomes religion. And you lose the relationship. And you begin to take compromises in your moral purity, in your finances, in your time, in your Sabbath rest, we begin to take compromises and we eventually get to a place we never thought we'd be. But we've got to keep up the image. I think Jesus understands that, but I think he wants us also to deal with that. Do you know that Jesus loves Pharisees? A lot of times we think that Jesus didn't like Pharisees. You know what a Pharisee was? Someone that actually did what the word of God said, but to the letter. They missed the heart of it all. They missed Jesus in it all. But they did. Jesus loved the Pharisees, but he wanted them to walk free. They weren't free. They had an image of religion, but not a relationship. And my guess is that even will define some of us in this audience today, but we don't want to tell anybody. Because we're afraid that we're the only one. Back to the story. This woman was actually caught in the act of adultery. Now you've got to picture that for a minute. The, the Pharisees, to, to catch someone in adultery, you'd have to position yourself carefully behind the curtains. You, you would have to listen to the seduction. And at the, right, at the right spot, at the very right time, you'd have to expose yourself and let them know that they were caught in the act. Blankets pulled up. Embarrassment, shame. And then there's the nod to the man to let him go. He was in on it all along. And then the woman realizes she's been set up abandoned, betrayed, and she realizes that her accomplice, the man who just left the room, never even was attracted to her. It was all a setup. Betrayed, abandoned, vulnerable, violated, and now exposed. On a side, side note to address two groups of people that can probably identify with this woman. The one group of people is those in our midst today who live life in the shadows. We want to follow Jesus but we've got secret behaviors in our lives and we pretend to follow Jesus, but we've got these behaviors that we don't want to give up. You know who you are. They're secrets. They're things you watch and view or there's the too much wine or the escape to food or the, maybe it's the gossip. Maybe it's the bitterness, the criticism you've got in your heart. Maybe it's the Life that you terminated in the womb at one point you don't want to tell anyone about. Maybe it's, maybe it's this real state of your marriage. You're never going to leave each other because you're Christians, but you know the marriage is dead and so do the kids. It's a secret. You live life in the shadows. You're afraid if people knew the truth about you, they wouldn't love you. Or It's a challenge. Financial deception, maybe. Here's the question. Is there anything in my life that if it were exposed on the big screen would slander the name of Jesus Christ, ruin my reputation and the reputation of this church? Is there anything in my life that if it were exposed on the big screen, any conversations I've had this last week, 
any little shortcuts I've taken, any lies I've told, anything I've viewed or watched or a relationship that I shouldn't be in. And if there is, and there will be in a room this big, here's my best advice. You don't wait until it gets exposed to deal with it. The consequences will almost always be less when you deal with it now. And sometimes we think we're going to get away with it, but I'll tell you something about the devil. He will eventually expose you. Either God and his love will expose it because you're not walking free. You've always got to wait. You're always worried about someone finding out. You've got to live a dual life, and it's exhausting, and it's not freedom. doesn't matter how high you wave your hands when you're worshiping. If you've got secrets in your lives, secret sins in your lives, secret things that you're doing in your lives, you are not free. It's a game, and you will never feel close to God. That's another problem. You'll never feel close to God. You'll never have any authority in your prayers. You will never step out in faith to serve God in faith, because if you step out in faith, you're going to need God to anoint it, so the Holy Spirit's going to have to draw near. So if the Holy Spirit draws near, he's going to put pressure on your secrets, because the secrets are killing you. But what Satan will often do, he will wait to expose you until he can cause ultimate damage. So my best advice is to learn to deal with it before it gets exposed. The consequences will almost always be less. The other group of people just want to mention is those of you who've been exploited or abandoned or betrayed or violated growing up or even later on in life and you know who you are. Someone was supposed to protect your purity and someone stole it away from you and told it was your fault. Or you were abandoned. Or you were told that you're nothing and no one will ever love you or you're a quitter or you're not good enough. You are not, you are not responsible for that. You are not guilty for that. Even if they told you it was your fault, it's not true, but you've embraced it because you were little or you were young and you were vulnerable and you began to wear that label, you began to wear those lies, but it's not true, that's not you. But because of that pain, you've chosen to live life in the shadows to cope. And you are responsible for that. And as a result, your ways of coping and trying to protect your heart with either controlling other people or rescuing other people or numbing your heart with alcohol or food or TV or Facebook or work or whatever it is you do, impurities, that is doing damage in your life today. Even though you were hurt by another, you are responsible for that. And my advice to you is don't wait until the pain becomes unbearable before you deal with it. Back to our story. I also want you to listen very carefully to the rest of the story. But back to our story in verse 6. This is brilliant. Jesus is absolutely brilliant. They said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus didn't answer them. He bent down and began to write. This is really, this is really practical. Uh, guess what? You don't have to respond to every text. You don't have to respond to every Facebook post. You don't have to respond to every email. You don't even have to respond to every voicemail. Jesus ignored their question because he knew there was a bigger issue. And he begins to write in the, in the ground. And uh, Jesus intuitively knew what we teach in third year psychology. The presenting problem is not always the problem. A lot of, um, some people think that he, he began to, to write down the, uh, the Ten Commandments. Other people think it's something else. I think it's the Ten Commandments. But let me just address the skeptics in the, in the room for a minute. And what I mean by skeptics is, you, someone might have invited you to church today. You don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, we are incredibly glad you're here. We hope that just by hanging out with us a little bit, some of Jesus will rub off on you and you'll actually be attracted to Jesus through us. We're going to do it poorly. We don't always do it. We try, but we don't always do it right. So I hope that you can see Jesus rather than just us. But here, let me ask you a question. What is your best reason for not inviting Jesus Christ 
to be Lord and Savior of your life? What's your best reason? Let me address those of you who've invited Jesus to be Savior but not leader. In other words, you've invited Jesus for fire insurance so you go to heaven, but you're going to live your life and you're going to be in control the way you want to do it. What is your best reason for not inviting Jesus to be leader of your life? What's your best reason, your best rationale? What about some of you? What's your best reasons for not forgiving someone? What's your best reason for not forgiving that person? Your best argument. What's your best reason for not tithing? What's your best reason for not giving up pornography or too much alcohol? What's your best reason for that? For those of you who are considering leaving your spouse, what's your best argument for leaving your spouse? For those of you who are living together or thinking of living together, what's your best reason for not getting married? My point is, I don't think that those are the big issue. I think the big issue are issues of heart. I think a lot of those things are symptoms. And if you really, you know, let's take marriage, make a couple living together. It's because of money. No, it's not because of money. It's usually because of commitment. Now, I'm going to be very careful because we're not judging. We're not condemning. You already probably, if you're in church, you're living together, you're sleeping around with someone, you probably already feel bad about it. So we're not condemning you. We're just actually helping you look like it. Why are we doing that? Because you're afraid of commitment probably because you saw someone hurt you and you're afraid of committing your life to someone else. Or maybe you saw mom and dad didn't get along and you don't want that. You're afraid. You're hurt. If you're thinking of leaving, leaving a spouse, you're hurt. You probably still love the person. That's why you hate them so much. Because they hurt you so bad. You know, ironically, I was, um, and I'm just going to park on this one just for a bit and, and um, on divorce. Because ironically, a, a while ago, I was preaching in another city and we had the altar prayer at the end. And a guy comes up and um, he wanted to follow Jesus, but he'd walked away from the Lord because his parents were both Christian leaders and they went through a really ugly divorce when he was younger, a teenager. So he thought, if that's the way God is, if that's the way Christians are, the last thing I want to do is anything with the church. So he wandered from God and he had just made some terrible choices in his life. His life was ruined. He comes back. He's about 50 years old and he wants to come back to Christ. He's broken. So I'm praying for him at the altar. And then right after that, I pray for another person who's, who's just going through a divorce right now. They've got children right now, and they're going through a divorce. They're full of bitterness. They're running to alcohol and stuff like that. And then I prayed for another person going through a divorce right now. It was kind of ironic for me because they both have children. So here's my advice to those of you who are thinking about leaving a spouse. At least do it the way Jesus would. If, if, if you've got biblical grounds for a divorce, you know, and you might. And I know that divorce happens. And it is a concession. It's, it's for the, 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 less, uh, the less guilty party or the more innocent party to be able to have a, a life. And I get all that. But if you're going to go through that, at least do it the way Jesus would. In other words, forgive the person. Actually begin praying blessing in their life. They're not the devil. Stop talking negatively about them to your children. Pray blessing. And then if you still need to divorce them, go ahead. But at least build a communication with them because they're people. And we'd have a lot less broken children that grow up if we did that. Brilliantly, Jesus is writing the Ten Commandments, and as they continued to ask him, they kept asking him, should we stone this woman or not? As they continued to ask them, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent, bent down and began to write on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. Isn't that interesting? You know, the beauty of growing older is wisdom. It's not, it's not appearance, is it? <laughs> we all grow from hunk to chunk as we get older. 
but there's a wisdom that comes with age. Not everybody gets this wisdom and grace, but one of the beauties of getting older is you know you actually, if you're honest, you actually have to become humbler. Because as you get older, you begin to realize, you know what, I'm really not much better than anybody else. The sins in my heart, the pride, the arrogance, the entitlement, I'm really no better than anybody else. And you begin to actually be willing, if you grow older with grace, you begin to actually be willing to share with other people that you're flawed too. And you give your children and other people around you permission to be honest and flawed as well. Never ever underestimate the power of a 53-year-old mother or father who spent most of their, too much of their time raging or working or drinking or whatever mistakes you've made. Never underestimate the power of a 53-year-old or a 62-year-old or an 84-year-old mom or dad who begins to write letters to their children and other people they heard and said, I want you to know I'm sorry. I'm starting to see how my need for control or fame or success or pleasure really deeply hurt you or your mom or whatever it is. Never underestimate the power of that to bring your wandering children back to the Lord. They're looking for someone to be authentic and show them that there's grace even amongst mistakes. And they'll probably forgive you, but if we keep giving the impression that we got it all together, we keep giving them the impression that they've got to keep up the image and it doesn't work. Now, you probably know that I wrote the program Freedom Session, and Center Street's been offering Freedom Session for a number of years. Here's my challenge. If you're broken and hurting, I invite you to take Freedom Session. Or if you grew up in the church, you're what they call a gooba, growing up born again. I invite you, if you know that there's something missing in your heart, that you don't quite have what you appear to have, if you're kind of like Nicodemus, I would actually encourage you to take the freedom journey as well and find out what's in your heart. It's not a program for people with addictions. It's a program for people with lives. And we've all had experiences. And we, you know what we've never done? We live, life is very fast. It goes very fast. And few of us ever take the time to process some of the wounds and hurts that have happened in our lives and the lives we believed as a result. In her, somewhere in the 1930s, a young girl by the name of Nettie, she was four years old and she, she moves from Russia. Her family had moved a few, a few months earlier and she comes from Russia alone for a health reason. I can't remember why she was delayed a few months, but they didn't have phones in those days. She comes all the way from Russia in a boat, then they stick her on a, a, a train and she goes all the way to Herbert, Saskatchewan. They drop her off at the Herbert, Saskatchewan train station. And it was a whole hour, someone got their messages crossed in the Times, it was a whole hour she stood on the platform not speaking a word of English, four years old. No one wanted to hurt her, and Satan began to birth lies in her heart. No one's coming for you, you're all alone. And she believed in her heart. No one was trying to hurt her, but that was an experience, and she believed in her heart she was alone, and she lived her entire life petrified of being alone. She ended up marrying a pastor. She was a good woman. She ended up marrying a pastor. They had a great life. They raised, had, had 11 children, maybe because she was afraid of being alone, so they just kept having kids. <laughs> but on her deathbed, Satan came back and tormented her. You're dying alone. No one's here. How do I know that? Because that was my grandma. And then we didn't find that out until her funeral. My point is that's just an example of a very godly woman, but never having the opportunity to process some of the hurts, always needing to keep up the images, always keeping it up. And God never healing that, and God wanted to heal it, but she never had the opportunity because she didn't have the language in her culture. I'm not talking English or low German. I'm talking she didn't have the language of healing, but Jesus Christ is doing a healing work in the body of Christ, and it starts in the body of Christ because we're not nearly as healthy as we appear. 
at least in British Columbia, maybe in Alberta, but beginning with the older ones. Now we come to the primary message of the story. It's really simple. In essence, Jesus just saved this woman's life. She was guilty. (laughs) Jesus never said she wasn't guilty. Jesus just saved her life. And what's the appropriate response to this incredible grace? What's What's the response to grace? How do we actually find freedom? By the way, you know, in North America, we are so entitled. We think, we, 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 just, we think all this is about us. You know, last night, I almost put a Facebook post. This is embarrassing. I almost put a Facebook post because they put me in a smoking room. Not, not you guys, but the, the hotel put me in a smoking room. I said, you give me a smoking room. And she says, well, don't you smoke? And I said, no, I don't smoke. Anyway, so I'm in the smoking room, and they, we're talking a real smoking room. They really smoked it up the night before, obviously. And I'm in this, and I just about to put a post on Facebook complaining about being in this smoking room because I think that I deserve a non-smoking room. You know what I deserve? Hell. I deserve hell. You and I, if we want to talk about what we deserve, we deserve hell. This woman deserved to be executed. Jesus just saved her. What's the appropriate response to grace? And Jesus gives it to her. He says, who is here that condemns you? And she says, no one, Lord. And he says, neither do I condemn you. You want to know the appropriate response to grace? It's twofold. One is, Jesus invites you. He desires. He almost commands you. He doesn't command, but he instructs. He wants you to live with no condemnation. Jesus Christ invites you to live this day forward with no condemnation. It doesn't matter what you've done. Jesus Christ paid for it. One drop of blood is enough to forgive all of your sins, including the ones you're going to do next Tuesday. But one of the problems we have is we believe it here, but we don't believe it here. And that describes some of you. And just so you know, children, what is the word condemnation? Another big adult word. This is the definition of condemnation. It's, it's letting mean names stick to you. You know, you're at school or someone calls you a mean name and it sticks to you and you feel it, you keep thinking about it. Or mom or dad says, how come you can't be like your brother? And that sticks to you and you feel like you're not quite good enough. Condemnation is mean names that stick to you. So what is Jesus saying? Let me give you the Ken version of that verse of scripture. There's no no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Here it is. Mean names no longer stick to me because Jesus loves me and thinks I'm okay. Mean names no longer stick to me because Jesus loves me and thinks I'm okay. Let's try to memorize a verse of scripture together, just for the sake of the kids. Let's try it. Mean names no longer stick to me. Let's try that again. Mean names no longer stick to me. Mean names no longer stick to me. The second part is because Jesus loves me and thinks I'm okay. Let's try that part. Because Jesus loves me and thinks I'm okay. Let's put it all together. Mean names no longer stick to me because Jesus loves me and thinks I'm okay. One more time. Mean names no longer stick to me because Jesus loves me and thinks I'm okay. And here's the challenge for you adults. Lose the names. Because some of you still carry them. And Jesus says, you want to be free? Then I want you from this day forward to live with no condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. If you feel any condemnation this morning, it is not the voice of God. That is the voice of the devil. God brings about conviction and he reveals only that which he wants to heal. So if you feel pressure on an area of your life that you know that you're living not the way God wants, but if there's a pressure, that might be the Holy Spirit wanting you to change so that Satan can't take you out, so that it won't do damage in your relationships, so that you can live the abundant life that Jesus Christ wants you to live. That's conviction comes with a, with a warming, but condemnation's from the devil. It's shame. Shame is put on you. 
by other people or by Satan himself. But here's the challenge. And we would, we will, I, I know that uh, Pastor Wayne will invite people forward to pray, and I love to pray against shame and spirits of shame in people's lives. But one of the challenges is in this, you still might leave the service believing in the head, but not in the heart. And that's why a program like Freedom Session is so critical because it takes you on a journey over time, begins to open up these areas of our hearts, begins to ask Jesus Christ, what lies did I believe because of that? See, what lies did Nettie believe? That I am alone, that no one's coming for me. If a person's purity is violated at age four or five or six by a brother or an uncle or whoever, the lies, I'm dirty, damaged. Or if you had good parents, and you're always compared to a brother or sister. When will you be like them? The lies you believed is I'm only good, I'm only celebrated if I do the right things. But is that true? No, God celebrates us anyway. So the lies, so Freedom Session is a journey that over time we unpack these areas and we invite Jesus Christ into the areas of our lives. The, the youngest person that's taken Freedom Session is 16. The oldest person is 87. 87 years old in Washington, Olympia, Washington. She took Freedom Session last year and she's free. She's got this smile. She's never had a smile on her face. And for the 13 years she's got left, she's actually like a facilitator next year, 87 years old. And she's given permission for all these other people. And I don't care how old you are. If you're young, if you're a young adult and you're thinking about getting married, wouldn't it be a great idea to deal with some of these wounds and hurts before you get married and start messing up your wife or your husband? And, and don't think that they're, you know, a lot of times we get married, you know, because we think, ah, oh, I finally found the woman of my dreams who's going to just meet all my needs and make me feel special. No, that's called dating. <laughs> <laughs> What's the chances my wife and I are going to come together and make a whole marriage when we are both got some unwholeness? Slim. That's why it's such a gift. And, and you don't just need freedom. You don't necessarily need freedom session. Maybe what God wants you to do is just come out of the shadows. you got secrets in your life. Just find a girlfriend if you're a girl. And find a girlfriend. Start sharing this. Find a counselor. Find a pastor. Talk to someone in your small group, in your, hutters, in your huddles. Just be a little bit more honest. Stop playing the game. And again, no condemnation. I grew up in the church. I get it. I know. I pastored churches and created that environment that we all got to keep up this image that none of us live. Now, it, it's not about, you know, just, just talking about it and navel-gazing and blaming our grade two teachers for how messed up we are. Yeah, we're going to look at that. We're not blaming people, but then we're going to care enough about each other to deal with it and to grow, but we first got to care. And often we've just gone from, this is the word and this is what we've got to do, and we never process the pain. And we, we don't realize that it leaks out. The second part that Jesus wants us to do is just as important, but it's just as tough. He wants us to live forever without condemnation, but he also wants us, what else does he say to the woman? Neither do I condemn you, now go and stop sinning. <laughs> Leave your life of sin. You see, a lot of this woman's pains in her life were actually a result of poor choices. And when we make poor choices, yeah, there's a lot of things that come upon us, and Satan often can, can have a, a legal ground to attack us because we, we live in what Jesus calls sin. Sin's not a bad word. It just defines those things that, live outside, that are outside the will of God. And when we choose, whether we're believers or not, when we choose to live in sin, we open up our lives for Satan to mess us up in that area of our lives. Plus, again, when we choose to live in sin, we will never feel close to God. We will never have authority in our prayers, and we also run very dangerously close to what the Bible calls falling away. 
And I am not talking here about you're, you're living your life for Christ and you screw up or you make a mistake. I'm not talking about that. It's called grace. Grace covers us. God doesn't want us to walk around being afraid that we're not going to go to heaven, but neither does God want us to walk around and deciding, God, I know you want me to do this. I know you don't want me to do that, but I don't care. I'm going to live my life this way anyway, and tomorrow morning I'm going to ask you to forgive me, and you've got to forgive me because that's your job. You're God, and I'm here, and grace has got to cover it. That is very dangerous, and some of us live that way. That's probably why a verse of scripture in Hebrews is in there. It says, if we go on willfully, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins remains, but only a fearful expectation of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. That is that premeditated, intentional, deliberate sin that we mock God and say, I don't care what you say, I'm going to do this. How is God supposed to forgive that? You're not even sorry. You have no intention. You're waving God around like a cosmic credit card. And he's not mocked. So if there is, that's why I asked at the beginning, if, if God speaks to you about an area in your life, what are you going to do about it? Or are we just going to, you know, go and have dinner or lunch? And... A number of years ago, I went to a cardiologist because I had a little heart problem and my cardiologist was this little Egyptian woman about four foot eight, and uh, I don't know why I said that, but <laughs> she said, Ken, your problem's twofold. You've got some, some yeah, systemic issues, you've got some hereditary issues, and you've got some diet and stress issues, and you've got to deal with those and some exercise, but the other thing is you've got to stop eating nacho chips and red meat, <laughs> because we can deal with all the systemic issues we want, all the heart issues we want, but if you keep living the way you're going to live, you're living, you're going to die young. So I did what any good red-blooded male would do, I stopped going to my cardiologist and I feel much better. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Here's the deal. Three groups of people. One that lives life in the shadows and you know it and you don't feel good about it. God's put some pressure on there because he wants you to deal with it. Another group of people that have been exploited, burned, betrayed, wounded, abused. And you're deathly afraid of that pain, so you numb it. And there's another group of people, and that's the Pharisees that walked away. None of them are free. The truth sets us free. So whatever truth God has put in your heart, he wants you to deal with, that will be your first step to freedom. For some of you, I think, a good chunk of you should consider going to freedom sessions. Some of you should have an honest discussion with your wife or your husband. Some of you should probably write a letter of apology to someone you've hurt. Maybe some of you should get some accountability in your life. Maybe some of you should just ask the Holy Spirit a couple of questions that we'll ask in a minute. There's one other person in the, in the, in the story, and that's the woman. The woman. Caught in the act of adultery. No one condemns her. She didn't care what the Pharisees said anymore because she saw what Jesus said about her. And out of love, my guess is, she left the life and worked on stopping sinning. Did she ever sin again? Probably, but she probably sinned less. You know, we're not sinless, but we can sin less. You know what? I don't think I've sinned today yet. Nope. I might not sin this afternoon. There's a good, there's a good chance I might get right to midnight without sinning today. No, I might sin. If I can go one day, maybe I can go two days. <laughs> you see, you know, we've got this idea that we just, we're just sinners, so we're going to sin. 
Well, no, we can actually sin less. We're not going to be perfect. We're not going to do it right. But sinning less actually tends to give us a better life and we're a lot nicer to be around. But let's close the service. Two questions. I ask you to bow your heads and ask the Holy Spirit two questions. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, is there anything in my life that I'm currently doing that you wish I wouldn't? Please bring it to my mind. Is there anything I'm currently doing you wish I wouldn't? The second question is the opposite. Lord Jesus, is there anything that I'm currently not doing that you wish I would? I ask you to bring that to my mind. And now the final question. Lord Jesus, what would you like me to do about it? What would you like me to do about it? Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.